Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. The work of the True 316 Foundation is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Listeners like you are joining us as members of the True 316 Foundation and support the work to true the verse of Genesis 316 and the seven key passages on women and men. It turns out, when Genesis 316 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And at the end of this episode, we'll tell you about a special gift we have for new members. And now, Enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. For season 11 on the Eden Podcast, we're going back in time and playing audio that we've never played for you before. I was doing a private Zoom series of sessions with a number of students, and I used PowerPoint slides that I referred to as we went along. You can see these presentations in full on our YouTube channel, I'd love to have you subscribe. It's simply True316. That's T-R-U-316. And now, let's get started. Think again about Eve, question and answer session. This session, we're going to use our textbook, Think Again About the Woman in the Garden of Eden, book one, retold according to the Hebrew, by Dr. Joy Fleming, PhD, University of Strasbourg, France. And we'll be talking about France, what happened in Strasbourg. There's a big story about that. That'll be the last part of our session this evening. I can't wait to tell you about it. In our question and answer session, are there good questions? Are there bad questions? Are there good answers? Are there bad answers? Yeah, we have all of those. Yes, 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 and yes. And we need to think again about how to ask questions and answers. This is our first workshop question and answer session. And we're going to go over the first part of the seminar on how to do it, how we're going to ask questions, how we're going to ask and find answers for thinking again about the Bible. Of course, the big problem is there are bad questions and there are bad answers I grew up going to church. We moved nine different times when I grew up. And as we did, we went to different churches and different people were involved in the different churches and we had a good time. But some people shared things that that were just, uh, we could call it pooling their ignorance. That's not very kind. But what I want this to be is a profitable session and not just based on my opinions or even your questions, but based on what the scripture tells us And so we're going to focus on some basic guidelines. We're going to study the four principles and the six steps that help us formulate our questions and answers too, as we think again about how to think again about the Bible. What are the four principles? One, God is the source of all truth. We're looking for that truth. We're going to learn that truth. We're going to be guided by that truth. Two, everything in the Bible has its own place. Three, everything in the Bible has its own meaning. And four, the Bible is meant to change me. The Bible is meant to change you. 
What are the six steps in asking questions and thinking again about the Bible? One, think again about the context of the passage. What is the passage? We're assuming the Bible verse we're looking at is inside a passage. Where does it start? Where does it stop? Another question we have to ask is, what's the content of the passage itself? And there are various kinds of Bible passages. Is this a teaching passage? Is this a telling passage, telling us the history of something? Is it from the Psalms or the Proverbs? Is it something else? We have to think again about the key image or the key idea. Is there something we have to pay attention to grammatically? Is there something we have to pay attention to theologically? We have all of that in what we're doing in this session. We'll see the other ones in a second, but let's focus in on step one. As we think again about Eve, good questions uh, to ask about the context of the passage are these. What important information was given to us in Genesis chapter one? That's the overall day one through day six through day seven. God rested. Everything was very good. On day six, he created man and woman in his image. What details are given in Genesis chapter 2, which flushes out what happened on day six? And then what details are given in Genesis 3, which basically tells us what happened after that sixth and seventh day? And then there's more. What is told to us about the rest of the beginning in Genesis chapters 4 through 5? Step two, applying the steps as we think again about Eve, we've looked at the context. We're going to look at the content for a second here. We'll go more in detail. So the passage is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.16, our key verse is right in this big passage. It's a big passage, so where does 3.16 fit in it? This entire passage is very detailed. It's very well organized. It gives us God's point of view on what happened. And the seventh section is verses 3, 8 through 24, and that's where we find Genesis 3, 16. The key ideas that are in these chapters are the creation of the woman by God in chapter 2, her deception by the lying serpent tempter at the beginning of chapter 3, her truthful response to God a few verses later, and her gentle judgment by God, especially in 3.16. These are the key ideas. Note God is acting in number one and number four. Her creation by God and her gentle judgment by God. Then we have steps four through six. Four, think again about the verses of special interest. We know where we're going to focus there. Number five, think again about the points of application. If it's meant to change us, we need to think about how it's going to change us. And number six, circle back again and think again about what the passage does not say. That's very important on this passage, especially. Here's four. Genesis 3.16 is in the seventh section. It is centered in verses 15 through 17, where there's a linchpin speech between God's words to the serpent tempter and to the man. And in 3.16, there are 11 Hebrew words where God acts and God teaches. Step five for the six steps, the points of application. Well, 
we have to apply this. We don't want to think, don't dare think of Eve anymore as cursed. Since we're in relation to the man, God lovingly warned Eve about field work. But that wasn't a curse given because of her. That was because of the man. And we don't dare think of Eve as cursed since in relation to the attack and their death, God lovingly confirmed her conception and her part in crushing the tempter. As a result, we get to think of Eve as a warrior, a key person in the plan of salvation. And six, what does the passage not say? Well, we must unlearn and stop doing what has wrongly been taught about Eve in the Garden of Eden. There's lots of that. We'll look at some of it tonight. And we must correct all teaching about New Testament passages that assume Eve was cursed, that Eve was guilty, that Eve was flawed, any of that. Now, it's time for those good questions. What about Eve and the tempter? That's coming up next. Followed by, what was the motive of Eve? What was the desire of Eve? What about the sin of Eve? Then what is the context of 316? What exactly are the Hebrew words of 316? How were God's words to her different from God's words to the other two? Speaking of multiplying, what happens when God multiplies? And we have received some extra questions, and so they're not on the PowerPoint, but they will be in our session. Question number one. What about Eve and the tempter? I was rereading my wife's description of the terrible tempter at the tree in Eden, and I got the creeps. Uh, I went back to Star Wars and terrible Darth Vader, and uh, evil is well depicted in that movie. Others, sure, but in that one especially. So I got thinking about um, the serpent as Darth Viper. What about Eve and the tempter? I went back not only into the resource books, but all the way back to my wife's dissertation, page 324. I'll have the pages marked here. And I have a quote that, from what she wrote in that 400-page dissertation about Satan. He is wily in his manner of engaging conversation and casting doubt on the loving and benevolent character of God. He engages the woman in conversation and encourages reflection in such a way as to challenge authority and sow doubt. Oh, to think that God has said, you shall not eat from any tree. He misquotes God's words, greatly exaggerating the one small prohibition to not eat of one tree, one tree singled out from among all the trees and all the possible prohibitions. They had been given everything they needed for their well-being and pleasure. And then the serpent flatly contradicts the truth of God's words. You shall not surely die. Stunning the contradiction. And who is the serpent to tell her that? When she talks to the serpent, her words expressed faithful and uncompromising obedience to God. His words are an attack of incredible boldness, Joy writes. He immediately presses his attack by turning on God. He accuses God himself of having evil motives. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This serpent claims to know what God knows, and God is holding out on them. God led them to believe it would be bad to eat of the one tree. The serpent claims to know more. Oh, it would really be good. 
they would attain greater knowledge and become like God. And she sums it up. The serpent's claims are enormous. To have God's knowledge, serpent claims to know all that God knows, and to change the meaning of the forbidden tree. That's who she was dealing with. So what was Eve's motive as we see her response? The woman examined the fruit herself. Verse 6 explains why she ate of it and gave it to her man. She was attracted to it for three reasons. It was good for food. It was pleasing to look at. And she thought eating it would make one wise. Wasn't it called the tree of knowledge? After eating the fruit, she thought was good. She gave some to her husband. And then Joy writes, there's no indication of malicious intent in her sharing with her husband what she thought was good. She was, in fact, and unfortunately, deceived, as she confessed in Genesis 3.13. Depending on what God tells us about this event at the tree, what the serpent said to her, what she thought, what she did, what she then confessed to God, we have an idea of who she was and and what a wonderful warrior she, she had been in ruling over that serpent, telling him what the truth was, investigating things on her own, and then she was deceived. Now, those who think she was at fault through much of this, and we'll see that in a second, they wander away from verse 316, where the word desire is used. They think that the word desire is not good and not normal. And frankly, they end up far from the truth. Joy writes, and she's quoting H.C. Uh, Leupold in 1942. He was a, a very helpful Lutheran commentator. I, I enjoyed many. I bought his entire series of uh, commentaries on the Bible. I didn't realize it, but he got way off here on Genesis 3.16. This is what he says about desire. He calls it yearning. This yearning is morbid, and it's not merely sexual yearning. Was, was that what it was in the first place? He says so. It includes the attraction that woman experiences for man, which she cannot root from her nature. Independent feminists may seek to banish it, but it persists in cropping out. Now, he's labeling people as independent feminists back in the 1940s. There's a lot of history on the comments going on, a lot of history about the battle for Genesis 3.16. And he's, he's trying to his best to work about it, work it through. And then he talks about this desire, and he says, this bad desire, he says, well, it may be normal. It often is not, but takes on a perverted form, even to the point of nymphomania. It is a just penalty. She who sought to strive apart from man and act independently of him in the temptation finds a continual attraction for him to be her unavoidable lot. Well, there's a lot in here that is avoidable, and it, it'd be fun just to spend time sitting over a cup of coffee and talking about all the different things that are going on in this passage. You would have trouble and might be deceived uh, trying to go through this. When I did first read through this, I remember getting hung up on the word nymphomania. I don't know if I figured out all the rest. In 1975, more recently, Susan Foe, coming out of Westminster Theological Journal, wrote this. After the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight 
The woman's desire is to control her husband. That's what the desire is. And he must master her if he can. And my wife responded in her dissertation, quote, according to this view, male rulership was actually instituted sometime before the fall. However, male rulership is an alien concept before the fall and is a result of sin after the fall. Sin. So what was Eve's sin? Quoting from her dissertation, page 329, another claim has been that the woman did not get her husband's permission before acting, but acted on her own initiative. That was her sin. Or similarly, she was acting insubordinately to her husband, whose authority she usurped. The assumption is that women could not or should not make a decision on her own. John Piper wrote this, and by the way, I, I had lunch the other day in a, a small restaurant in town, and who would come up to the table beside us, but I saw John Piper and some people, I suppose they were from his church, hope they had a good lunch. We did too. Didn't have a chance to talk about this, uh, but this quote goes on. He abdicated his rule, role as leader and protector while she accepted the serpent's challenge to become the spokesman and leader. That's what she was tempted to do. And so both fell as they reversed their God-appointed roles of Genesis 2. Joy responds, but the husband of the woman was neither her superior nor inferior, nor was he her decision maker. She found the fruit appealing on three counts. The problem was that she acted independently of God, considering the fruit apart from his command not to eat it. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast, brought to you by the members of the True 316 Foundation. Research into the Old and New Testaments by Dr. Joy Fleming and Reverend Bruce C.E. Fleming forms the base of all our work. Joy is a former Old Testament professor and is a practicing licensed psychologist. Bruce is the author of the Eden Book series, which starts with Book 1, The Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3. We invite you to become a donor member of the True 316 Foundation as together we seek to true the verse of Genesis 316 and related passages. When you become a member, we'll send you an autographed copy of the Book of Eden. Sign up today by going to true316.com member. That's tru316.com member.